0: And surrender to you, you tell us what you want us to do, and we humbly obey. So, so the Lord has given us His word, so we look into His word to obey. So, if you would turn with me in your Bibles or on your devices to Revelation, the second chapter, we're at the end of the New Testament in the book of Revelation, and we start out this series by saying, You ain't got nothing to be scared of when it comes to the book of Revelation. This is the book of victory for those who belong to Jesus. These, these are Jesus' words for the church. That's why we should be excited whenever we are able to read the book of Revelation and also because Jesus himself, is, he says it is a blessing uh, for those who read the words of Revelation. We receive a blessing by reading his word here. So in Revelation, the second chapter, we're looking at these Letters that Jesus has sent to his church, and these letters, they, they go to God's purposes and plans for his church. We started out the series looking at the church in Ephesus, letters to a loveless church. In this, this particular church in Ephesus, there uh, we, we, we learned that our devotion must be both to truth and love. We, we can't just say we have the truth and this is what God says without having a measure of love to say that the truth has transformed us from the inside out and produced something tangible within us. And, 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 and Jesus says to the church in Ephesus, have you forgotten your first love? I was your first love. The, the scriptures was your first word, love. Yeah, the, the ability to do and to share the gospel was your first love. What are you doing now? Are you just hoarding this word? Or are you sharing this word? We looked at the church in in Smyrna, letter to a persecuted church. This This church was in the midst of hostility, persecution, and suffering. Yet we see that the church must be fully surrendered to the supremacy of Christ in order to survive hard times. And the guarantee that when we do surrender to Jesus, it will lead to suffering and sacrifice. We will suffer because we're peculiar people. We will suffer because when you say, I'm standing up for Jesus, you have a target on your back that Satan is aiming for now. And there will be suffering as a Christian. There will be tribulation. Isn't that what Jesus says? If, 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 if our Savior suffer, how much more will his servants suffer? But yet, as the church, we sacrifice because we have surrendered our lives to Jesus Christ. That means my life is not my own. That means that I'm able to, uh, to, to yield my life to Jesus, and he will use my life glory and my good. But this morning, we have the opportunity to read the letter to the third of the seven churches in, uh, in the book of Revelation. Here, we're looking at the church in Pergamum. And I just want to give you just a word of caution and warning. All week, the Lord has been stepping on my toes, and he's been convicting me, and this is a hard word. And and my prayers, I'm not, I'm not singling out anybody. I'm not pointing to anybody in particular. I, I, I'm preaching the Word of God, but we must understand that if we feel that this Word is hitting us in the forehead, then the Holy Spirit must be speaking to us. But it's a hard word. For that reason, I broke it up into part one and part two. We'll start with part one this week, and then we'll look at Uh, second part next week, but if you would, please stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word and Revelation, the second chapter. We'll be looking at verses 12 through 17. 12 through 17. This is the Word of God. Please hear the voice of Christ. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum, write, these words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword, May the Lord add a blessing to the reading of His word. You may be seated. Today's sermon title is simply Letter to a Compromised Church. Letter to a Compromised Church. You know, it's easy for man-made edifices to be compromised. You know, it wasn't too long ago where we took the time to, to have the entire church treated against termites. You know how termites work. Uh, termites, they, they get inside of a building and they begin to burrow. They begin to uh, make holes. They, be, they begin to chew up the wood. And if, if left unchecked, termites will, will begin to, to eat into the foundation so much so that, that walls might start coming down and it will become safe to even to walk up in the church. You'll go to open the door, the whole door might fall off the hinge. but because termites are, are, they're really destructive. But the thing about termites is if you're looking from the outside, you won't even notice their destructive activity. It's not until you take a closer look and examine what's going on on the inside do you see how destructive termites can be. So we took the church, uh, uh, we took the opportunity to be faithful stewards of what God has given, and we had the church treated for termites to make sure that none of that would take place here. Because termites are so physically destructive. Beloved, this this church is not only under threat of physical destruction by termites, but this church is under constant threat of spiritual destruction because of sin. See, just like termites, the threat uh, to take down this church will come from the inside and not the outside. The threat will take down this church from the inside if not treated properly. What am I talking about? The threat is us compromising to sin. If we allow sin to infect our hearts and the way we operate, the way we preach, the way we teach each and every week, beloved, this church may not fall physically, but it sure will fall spiritually. And we will not be able to be the church that has called us to to be a beacon of light in this world proclaiming Jesus Christ. When a church compromises because of sin, a church will be compromised because of sin. There's this word compromise, I'm using it in two ways. Compromise in the sense that we are, that we're lowering our standard. We're lowering our guard. We're lowering our expectations of what should be taught and what should be believed here within this church. But when we do that and false teaching comes in and false doctrines come in not only to this church but into our hearts, we now become a compromised people because the truth in us has been affected. It has been perverted because of false teaching. This word compromise simply means unable to function optimally, especially with regard to immune response, owing to underlying disease, harmful environmental exposure, or the side effects of a course of treatment. If if we compromise as a church and become compromised as a church, then we won't be able to be fully functional and effective for what God wants us to do. Beloved, I don't know about you. If we can't be the church, there's no use of us showing up on Sunday mornings. If we can't be the church, there's no use of you picking up your Bibles and praying. If we can't be the church, it matters. You don't need to go get a new suit or some new shoes to look good on Sunday morning. If we can't be the church, all of that doesn't matter. But God says, I got a purpose and a plan for you. And to fulfill that fully, we don't want to run at 50 cent capacity. You want your car to run at 50% capacity? Do you want your job to pay you at 60% capacity? Do you want your children to obey you at 80% capacity? No, we don't want anything but 100% capacity, so why would we expect less of God's church? We can't keep showing up and giving half efforts if God wants us to be wholly invested. We can't compromise or we will become compromised and we will not be able to fulfill God's mission for us. If we become compromised, we might as well be like other churches and just turn in our deed and let them turn this into another club, maybe a restaurant, maybe a mosque. I don't know. But God has so convicted me as long as there is breath in my lungs we're going to preach and teach the word of God. We will not compromise. We will not become compromised because God has a plan bigger than all of us. He has a plan for this community, for this state, for this nation and world to make much of Jesus Christ. But we see that Christ's church will always withstand external attacks. Over the the centuries, time and time again, many has come up against Jesus's church, they they may defeat it for a moment, but God's church has a way of always coming back strong. And over over the centuries, many have attacked the church. So we see that external attacks won't ultimately destroy the church, but beloved, we must really be on guard from internal attacks, inside jobs. This is what Paul is talking about in Acts the 20th chapter. In Acts, the 20th chapter, he's getting ready to depart from uh, the elders in Ephesus, and he's is, he is giving them last words. If, if, if I wasn't going to see you ever again and I gave you some last words, do you think those words would be kind of important? These are Paul's last words to the elders there in Ephesus, and he says to them, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Uh, Watch this in verse 29. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. Paul, he's talking about an inside job. Beloved, we don't have to worry about the government shutting us down. We don't have to worry about the folks on the street doing anything to us. You, the person that we need to keep an eye on the most looks back, to, back at us when we look in the mirror. We need to pay attention to our own doctrine, to our own beliefs, and, and how the world is affecting our mind because we actually don't leave that stuff at the door. You may try to act good when you get here. You may may try to put down all the cussing and fussing at the door, but if your heart is bad, it's going to come out. Jesus charges the church in Pergamum with this such task, to not be compromised. In order for the church to stand uncompromised within the world, the church must be uncompromised within itself. In order for the church to to stand uncompromised within the world, the church must be uncompromised within itself. In other words, for the church to remain faithful to Jesus on the outside, we must be wholly faithful to Jesus on the inside. For the text, there's two primary thoughts for us as we study First, satanic pressure to conform is real. Satanic pressure to conform is real. But then secondly, conformity begins with compromise. Conformity begins with compromise. Let's let's dig in. Just as Jesus has done in his previous two letters, Jesus takes a moment to remind the church in Pergamum just who's writing to him. In verse twelve, he says, "And to the angel of the church in Pergamum, write the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword." He he's looking back, remember, in chapter one, where Jesus is laying out his identity, and he, and he's talking about this this sharp two-edged sword that comes out of his mouth. Jesus, the the word that has become flesh, and and coming from his mouth flows judgment words of truth. This is what he's talking about. This sword is the word of truth coming forth in judgment from the mouth of Jesus Christ. Hebrews 12 is something we look at it and uh, and can understand this even more. Hebrews 4 and 12 reminds us that for the word of God is living and active, sharper than what? Any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. What is he saying? The word of God is able to measure your motivations. The word of God is able to judge your actions rightly and correctly. See, you may be able to fool me. You may be able to fool your mama. You may be able to fool your daddy. You may be able to fool your teachers. But what he's saying, you can't fool God because he knows what's really going on. Beloved don't front for me. Jesus knows what's going on in our hearts, and He's He's reminding this church. I know how you're standing on the outside, but beloved, be careful what's standing up in you on the inside. You must pay attention to your beliefs, your 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 doctrines, and how you live. This, Jesus is coming with this two this this sword, this two-sided sword to his people. And, and what he does, he goes right from this, this statement of identification to this is how you are to live and this is what's going on in your life. And as a matter of fact, he gives them a word of commendation. He gives them a, 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 a he commends them because of their ability to stay uncompromised even in the midst of satanic opposition and oppression. Look here in verse 13. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name. And you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. What, what is Jesus talking about? You know, the entire world is currently under Satan's influence. He's affecting everything. As a matter of fact, Jesus in John 14, 30, he said he calls Satan the ruler or the prince of this world. Satan has some authority, some power. In 2 Corinthians 4, 4, as a matter of fact, it says that the God of this world has blinded the eyes of those who don't believe. Satan is actively working against you. He is actively seeking to make sure you go off track with your life. He is actively hating on you. And as he is doing that, he, th- there are areas within the world where we actually see even greater oppression. There, there are areas in the world where we see considerable amounts of opposition and oppression. There's areas where we see Satan's hand directly on a city, on a nation. I mean, we, we can think of places like in the Middle East where even to, to, to say the name of Christ would get you killed? There's places in, in the world where it is nothing but sinfulness and wickedness, and there are places where the, the gospel of Jesus Christ has never been heard. There, 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 are, there are these places in the world where there seems to be this weightiness of Satan's hand. You know, back in Michigan... We lived right next door. So Inkston, Michigan, we lived right next door to Dearborn, Michigan. And Dearborn, Michigan has the largest population of uh, uh, Muslims and those from the Middle East, outside of the Middle East in the world. So, so you know, I grew up eating uh, chicken swamas and baba ganoush and hummus. I I grew up because it was right there. But I remember one time uh, we, had, we had a trip uh, with, with our church, and we went to go visit a mosque. And in preparing us to go to a mosque, this Christian ministry was, was, was telling us about some of the, the things that was going on in the community. And I will never forget what, what the lady was talking about in one particular area. There, there just seemed to be such a satanic stronghold on the people that, that any witness for Christ in America— could not infiltrate what was going on in that particular area. And I remember us spending time just praying for that particular area. There are areas in the world that are just like that right now where, where Satan just seems to have a hold and a grip on it. I don't know. Maybe talking about some of y'all houses or something, but, I, but I'm just saying. There's areas where Satan's hand just seems to be heavy. Pergamon was such a city. Pergamum was the official capital of the Roman prov- uh, province of Asia Minor. In Pergamum, there, there was this uh, heavy sense of uh, idol worship. Uh, the, the city was steeped in pagan religion. Uh, there were temples to Dionysus. He's the, the ancient Greek god of wine and winemaking. Temples to Athena, temples to Zeus, but primarily in Pergamum, that was the epicenter for cult worship, for imperial cult worship. What, what was that? We, we talked about that before. Imperial cult worship was really the worship of Caesar as God. And what they would do is if, if, if you would come into the city and there was a time every single year where you would, w- would be required to give a sacrifice Uh, to Caesar, and to acknowledge Caesar is Lord. And if you didn't acknowledge that Caesar was Lord, you were under a threat of your life being taken. Certainly you was cast out and people weren't treating you well, but instead of saying Jesus is Lord, they wanted you to say Caesar is Lord. There was tremendous opposition to Christianity and Tremendous pressure to conform to the culture in this city. We see that even one of the members of this church was murdered because of their belief, Antipas. We don't know much about Antipas, but Jesus says, my faithful witness, he was killed among them. He was killed for his belief in Jesus Christ. He was killed because he refused to bend the knee and say, Caesar is Lord. The government is Lord. He would only say, Jesus is Lord. Christians in Pergamum, they, they constantly lived under threat of their lives. And the culture would push and press them. But in the text, even in the middle of all of this, the church stood faithful to Jesus Christ. Beloved, be reminded that satanic influence and opposition and oppression is real. And if you don't notice, it's only because you're not looking. It's apparent. It's in front of us every day. Think about uh, uh, media's influence on what we believe. We, we, We believe something just because we saw it on Facebook. We roll up in church and we just get, you see something on Facebook, we telling everybody that such and such died and, no, they ain't dead. You just saw that on Facebook. How many times has that happened? You pass along bad information because you get it off the Internet. In the shows we watch and the conversations being had, there's this pressure to conform to the beliefs of this world. The satanic pressure was real for them in Pergamum and it's real for us today. We have the pressure to worship at the altar of money. We talked about that last week and how we, we have this desire for money. We, we want to work all these long hours that take us away from our family, that take us away from, from church, not because the bills just got to be paid, but because we're we saving up for that new TV. We save enough for that brand new car. We want that bigger house. And and we worship at the altar of money, thinking that money is going to be our savior. Or maybe we worship at the the altar of power. If I can only attain this position, if I can attain this particular degree, then I'm going to have control and the people are going to respect me finally. They're going to do what I say. Maybe we worship at the altar of sex making sex our God, and we're seeking relationships, not to be godly in our relationships, but to satisfy ourselves and and ourselves alone. There's the pressure to worship self in our culture. It's all about you. It's all about the selfie. It's all about your Instagram picture. It's all about you and what people think of you. Do enough people like you today for you to actually feel good about yourself? But, beloved, one, one area in America that's, that's prevalent, we like to worship on the, at the altar of comfort. Beloved, we, we just want to be comfortable. Don't bother me. Don't bring no chaos. If the game is on, don't talk to me. I just want to sit down, uh, get out the room. I, these folks at work get on my nerves. They just trying to get you to do your job, and and, and then your your supervisor get on your nerves, and your kids, get, and and you going crazy because you just want to be comfortable. Your you don't want a heavy calendar. You don't want to do hard things. We don't, we, if, the, if the temperature is, is a degree off in church, we say we mad because the air needs to be on. Or if the heat not high enough, we upset because it's all about our comfort. If our chair is not squishy enough, we move to another one. If our car ain't sweet enough and make us feel good about ourselves, we all about comfort in America. You take away my comfort, I'll cuss you out. You know how we do. Don't make me uncomfortable. So instead of grinding, instead of working hard, you know, I, I the, the Lord convicted me the other day because because I, I I was getting weak. I was getting real mentally weak, and I, and I wanted things a certain way. And I was and I was just talking to the Lord, and He was reminding me that this world and my life ain't for my comfort. It is for his glory. And if I'm going to live for his glory, it's going to be a lot of hard work. And he brought back to me something that they used to say. You know how they used to say, no pain, no? Pain. No pain, no? Pain. You say that to somebody now, especially a young person. No pain, no what? I, Beloved, we have been so distracted and fooled that we actually believe that we can have all the gain without the pain. We don't want to get aged because it's hard work. We don't want to excel. We we want to fly right below the radar at our job because if we get promoted, we'll have to do hard work. We don't want to really press in to, 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 to Jesus because that actually means I got to get up an hour early and read my Bible. Beloved, this this God of comfort is killing us. We don't want to do nothing no more. Let alone for Jesus. Take your pick. Sports, music, beauty, education. We worship at the altar of so many different gods. There's pressure to embrace cultural Christianity over biblical Christianity. What do I mean? Cultural Christianity says you ain't got to do all that. You ain't really got go to go. You, you don't really need to go to church every Sunday. I mean, every now and then is good enough, and, and you really don't have to have to pray. You just kind of sh- give a shout out to God and be like, you know, Rub-a-dub-dub, thanks for the grub. Oh, we just got a shout-out. No, we ain't really got to press in. Cultural Christianity says I get to identify as a Christian, but I don't actually have to act like a Christian or believe like a Christian. Cultural Christianity says, I'm just going to act this way because everybody else around me acts this way. But biblical Christianity says, If anyone wants to follow after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Biblical Christianity says, I have been crucified with Christ. No longer I who live, but Christ who lives within me. See, biblical Christianity says, because Jesus laid down his life for mine, I lay down my life for Jesus. It's not about me being on the throne of my own life. It's about leading and directing me every single day. You know what? Cultural Christianity says you can be a Christian and never share your faith with anybody. Biblical Christianity says go ye therefore and make disciples of all nations. Cultural Christianity says that that God is a genie in a bottle and when I just need help, I pray to him and he gives me what I want. Biblical Christianity says, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. See, see, there, there, there's a, a contrast between what God requires of us and what we require of ourselves. Beloved, you just tell the truth. If you was able to set all the standards in your life, how high would you really jump? Well, we will set that bar really low, wouldn't we? Well, we so lazy, we, we, we wouldn't even want to jump over. We just want to step over. That's not how Jesus rose, though. And this pressure is always around us. It's overwhelming that we will conform and just, it don't take all that to be a Christian. Just be like everybody else. Just talk like everybody else. Just walk like everybody else. Just believe what everybody else believes. But, beloved, the devil is a lie. Because Romans 12 and 2 says, and do not be conformed to this world. Do not be conformed. While while everybody else is conforming, Jesus says, do not be conformed, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. He wants us to get rid of all that stinking thinking and to focus our eyes and, and hearts on his word. Beloved, that's the only way. We must look to Jesus in order for the church to keep a faithful witness no matter the cost. Jesus, not money, Jesus and not power, Jesus and not sex, Jesus and not comfort must be the center of your worship. We worship Savior over self that's the only way that we will keep from compromise. And Jesus is commending Pergamum because they were holding fast. They, they, they weren't denying the faith, beloved, on, on that day when we see him face to face. Will Jesus say, will he, will he commend for us? Will he say, you were you, you faithful witnesses. You didn't deny the faith when things got hard, but you kept you kept along and you were faithful. Beloved, if if we're going to be faithful, we have to continue to serve Jesus and not ourselves. We have to, to, to live our Christianity outside of these four walls. If we're going to stand, we actually have to let people know what we save on our jobs. People in our family are going to need to recognize that we follow Jesus. If we're going to actually stand, somebody needs to know what you're actually standing for. We can't stand for Jesus unless we know and everyone else knows what we're standing for. But even as they stood, their strength was quickly fay- fading. And Jesus condemns them as to the reason why. In verse 14 and 15, he tells why. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they may eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. You know, there there were some within the church who were, Part of the church, not visitors who are members of the church who still had their own system of belief and and they were trusting in the teaching of the day. Beloved, understand this about false teaching today's false teaching is just rebranded over and over again, and this is what Jesus is getting to The, 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 the new wave, the newfangled teaching. Of the Nicolaitans was really the same teaching that Balaam had back in the day with Balak, and we remember Balaam. You remember Balaam in the in in the in book of Numbers. Around the 22nd chapter, Israel was coming through the land, and God had given them the land, and everyone who stood against Israel was, was conquered. So, so Balak, he was nervous. Those, he was the king of Moab, and, and he was nervous because he knew that they was going to overthrow his land. So he reached out to a prophet named Balaam, and he said, Balaam, I, I, I need you to come and, and curse these people. And if you curse them, uh, whoever you curse is cursed. Whoever you bless is blessed. So I want you to come. I'm going I'm to give you some money. Come curse these folks. He tried four times to curse them. And every time he opened up his mouth to curse the Israelites, God put a word of blessing in his mouth. But what happened is because he couldn't curse them, he he got with Balak and they came up with a a, a scheme. Turn with me to Numbers, the, the 25th chapter, the Old Testament. Numbers, the 25th chapter. Here, watch. We're going to put this together. Numbers, the 25th chapter. I actually preached on the zeal of Phinehas, but in verse 1, it says, while, well, actually, let's go back to verse 25 of the 24th chapter. Just go back one verse. So after he's tried to curse him, it says, Then Balaam rose and went back to his place, and Balak also went his way. While Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods, so Israel yoked himself to the Baal of Peor. What happened? Israel gets into the land. God has a hedge of protection around them. But all of a the sudden, they begin to, to worship false gods and idols. Why, why did they leave their first love? Moses chimes in on this in Numbers 31st chapter and the 16th verse. He, he, is, talking, he, is, he is calling the people that they have just went to war and they brought back all the women from Moab. And he says, what are y'all doing? And in Numbers 31 verse 16, he reveals the scheme. He says, behold, these on Balaam's advice caused the people of Israel to act treacherously against the Lord in the incidents of Peor. And so the plague came among the congregation of the Lord. So basically what happened, Balaam got with Balak and said, you know what, if you want to take down the Israelites, you need to send your women to seduce them and entice them. And when they fall into their enticement, they'll bring them back to begin to worship your gods, and then they're going to fall. That is the teaching of Balaam. This teaching that we see here that that the church in Ephesus stood up against in Revelation 2 and 6, Yet this you have, you hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Ephesus stood against this teaching, this teaching of idolatry and sexual immorality. Now, beloved, this is where Jesus smacked me in the face this week. Because the teaching of the Nicolaitans is the same as what Balaam was teaching, fundamentally, the teaching was that you could be a Christian and still party with sinners and be sexually active. I was like, where was this when I was in college? The teaching that is going to destroy the church from the inside is that you can be a Christian and still act like a sinner, talk like a sinner, party with the sinners, and do everything that sinners was doing, and participate in sexual immorality. I was like, you right now, whoa. Jesus is saying to hold to such a belief is to be compromised in your faith. This teaching that you could be a Christian plus something else. If you are a Christian, you are a follower of Jesus Christ and him alone. These are the teachings that were permeating the church in Pergamum. And beloved, they permeate the church in 2019. That you can be a Christian and still do what you want to do. YOLO. You only live once. Get it while you can. Make money. Do your thing. If, if you like it, I love it. This is the doctrine in the church. A system of false teaching that's going to take them down from the inside. We see other doctrines and other teachings we, that are contrary to God and, 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 and they're contrary because they are beliefs that go against God's purposes and plans for humanity. That's why it's contrary. So this ain't Pastor Nate who who got on this high horse and just wanna wanna talk about some stuff. It's it's no. God has laid out for us a blueprint for wholeness. He wants us to flourish, but yet we keep choosing the less than life. God wants us to live. I stand standing up here, but we keep choosing choosing dirt. God wants to give us glory, and we want dirt. He He wants to give us Himself, and we want rocks. We're choosing a less than life. Every system of false doctrine and teaching stands and rises on one thing, the denial of the authority, inerrancy, infallibility, and sufficient of Scripture. What do you mean, Pastor? All false teaching starts when you say, I'm the authority over God. Because now if, 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 if God's word is not the authority of my life, then I get to make up my own rules as I go along. You know, sometimes being a parent, we, we, we pretty bad at that. We, we lay out rules for our children, right? And then they do something that make us mad, and we just change the rules on them and, and, and flip the script on them. You know, I, I, I've been good at that. I'm guilty of that. And we try to just flip the script on God and say, Yeah, God, I, I know you said this, but I'm going to do this. Yeah, God, I, I I know you said that I should not have sex before marriage, but she fine. I, I, I know you said don't drink to be drunken, but that party was lit. I I I I know you said that I shouldn't gossip about such and such, but did you see what they had on? I I know you said That I shouldn't have a root of bitterness, but do you know what they did? I I, I know you said but. Whenever we say but to God, we're about to fall when it comes to his authority. False teaching always starts when we deny the Scripture's authority, but also when we deny the Scripture's inerrancy. simply means that everything that God has given us It's reliable, and and it doesn't go against what's factual. So people pick up the Bible and say, you can't really believe this. This was written by men over uh, years ago, and it really don't matter for us today. It's, It's not right. And if you are able to say that the Scriptures are not in there, then you're able to say, this stuff is a mistake, and I really don't have to follow it. Or, or the understanding that, that the Word of God is infallible. Everything in it is good to lead you into holiness and to righteousness. But most of all, we got the, the false understanding that the Scriptures is not sufficient for our life. That we need the Scriptures and something else. Any, anytime you add anything to the Scriptures, you're in error. You you don't need to add to God's word. He's he's given us every single thing we need for life and godliness. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Everything you need to know is already in God's word. False teaching rises and persists when we don't believe the Bible. Or, or, and I think this is what we're guilty of, false teaching rises and persists when we don't know our Bible. Because now people who are spewing the, the world's new, new age philosophy come in and they begin to talk crazy. You don't even know they're talking crazy because you don't even know That God's Word said, that's crazy. Next week, we're going to dig into this even a little more. It's so much here. But, beloved, I, I I just want us to pause. Just pause right now. And I just want you to really examine your heart. Do you just say you believe this? Or do you really believe this? I can say I believe this to fit in. But at the end of the day, if I really don't believe the word of God, I'm not going to live out the word of God. If I don't believe the Word of God, I'm not going to obey the Word of God. And if I don't obey the Word of God, then I could treat you any way I want to treat you because I missed that passage on love one another. If I I don't believe or know the Word of God, then, then I could do anything I want to do. Beloved, where are you today? If we're going to be a church that stands in the midst of a satanic culture, beloved, the culture is satanic. That's just what it is. If you're going to stand against the schemes of the devil and his demons and his minions and believe that what the world says goes or what people think about you matter more than what God believes of you and have decreed you to be already, if, if, if you believe the world more than you believe God, where, where does the church go? Jesus is speaking to us today. If, if we're going to be a church that's able to stand uncompromised to the world, then we're going to have to fight against compromise in our hearts. And that starts and ends upon the Word of God. Further on in the text, Jesus lays out their sinful behavior, and then he simply says to them, the way to fix this, you need to repent. You need to repent. You need to confess your sin to me, and you need to turn from your sin and trust in Jesus Christ alone. Beloved, you got a choice to make today, every one of us. Will you leave here believing God, or will you believe yourself? My prayer is that you will believe in our crucified Savior, The one who came and lived the life that you could not live. The one who died the death that you deserve. I hope you're able to believe him because he was willing to lay down his life for what he believed. Not only that, he took his life back up. And he reigns and rules in glory right now. If you can't believe in a risen Savior, then I don't know who you can believe in. Because a a, a dead Savior can't save you. But Jesus Christ alone got up on the third day with all power in his hand. And the Bible says that if we confess with our mouths and believe in our hearts that God has raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Saved from what? Saved from the power of sin over your life. Why, why I keep doing what I don't want to do? Because of sin is ruling and reigning and, may, and it's causing you to, to live in disobedience. Saved from the power of sin. Saved from the penalty of sin. What is the penalty of sin? For the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Saved from the power of penalty. Ultimately, Jesus wants to save you from the very presence of sin and glory. Because on that day, when I see him face to face, and I put on my new robe, that's all white. That's not stained or tarnished. I'm going to look at myself and I'm going to say, I i sure am sharp. Not because of what I got on, but because sin can't touch me no more. And I'll receive my glorified body in the land of no more. No more issues. No more drama. No more bills. No more Norton's. No more gas station. No more because I look to Jesus instead of looking to myself. Beloved, look to Jesus today by saying, Lord, I'm sorry for living for myself. Would you please forgive me? Would you please save me? And please make me your own. That's how we begin to believe what's in this word of God. Father, thank you for your word for on today, I ask that you would give us clarity and insight that we would see what areas that we have compromised, those areas where we have been compromised, and that we would repent and turn towards you by faith. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for these, your people. In Jesus' name, we do pray. Amen.